Today is uh, Pentecost Sunday, where we mark and celebrate the arrival of the Holy Spirit uh, in the church. Let's pray together to that end. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we pray, Spirit, that you would come and fill us afresh as we meditate on your word and as we respond today, that you would move in our hearts and in our family as a church and in our city. We ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. So the Feast of, of Pentecost, like I said, is the church's annual celebration of, of the, the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. We didn't read Acts 2 this morning, but it's a fairly familiar passage where the disciples are gathered together. This is after Jesus' ascension, his resurrection and ascension, waiting for the promised Holy Spirit to come, which Jesus had promised. And uh, the Holy Spirit shows up. And this is fulfilling what Jesus speaks of here in John, pardon me, in John 7. So I wanted us to look at this passage this morning um, because it's, it's, it speaks ahead to what we celebrate for Pentecost itself. Now the context is a Jewish feast. If you look at chapter 7, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 2, it says uh, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is the feast of... This is the setting, this is the gathering of the people, and this is the context where Jesus stands up and says these words. Now, the Feast of Booths, it's one of Israel's three big agricultural feasts where everyone would gather together and celebrate. Um, all of the, the firstborn men, especially, were required to show up. They had to be there, but everyone, everyone came. And you were celebrating first fruits of some of the harvest, uh, not all of it, but some of it comes in at different times, right? And so you can imagine it's quite a big, it's quite a big to-do. It's quite a big get-together. Uh, everyone's excited. You've got family coming in from out of town. Uh, you've got barbecue happening. You've got worship service happening. You can imagine it's something like family camp, I, you know, to some degree. Uh, everyone's having a great time. There's kids running around all over the place. Um, and at the same time, you've got... Uh, everyone out camping. So everyone's out in homemade booths that they've made. That's why it's Feast of Booths. To remember Israel wandering in the wilderness, how they had to sleep in tents. So it's like you're reenacting Israel's story uh, and celebrating God's provision when we were in the booths, so to speak. And part of the, the fun and the celebration, again, is kind of like the big barbecue as you're doing the sacrifices and everyone's bringing stuff in from the harvest. Part of what you do is also a water pouring ceremony, and they would draw water and pour it out uh, as, a, as a reminder of Moses and the water that Yahweh provided from the rock in the wilderness, right? And then they pour it out also in celebration of God providing agriculturally for them, for the water, for the crops, for the harvest. So all of that's, all of that's going on, remembering what God's done, thanking him for his faithfulness in the present, for the harvest, and everybody's together, and we're having a good time, and also looking to the future, and God's continual provision and his uh, return, his coming back, and the expectation that a Messiah will come who will also set things right. So that's the context of this feast. In fact, earlier in the chapter, that's the part where Jesus' brothers ask, are you coming up to the feast? Because Jesus is required to go as a firstborn male, right? So they're like, hey, are you coming? You need to come. And he says, I'm not coming right away. I'll show up later because he's got something significant that he wants to do. So that's, that's the setting, and it lasts about a week long, the whole thing. 
So that's why in verse 37, it says on the last day of the feast, which is the great day. So you kind of have six days of celebration stuff, and then you have like kind of a big, big days, really exciting at the last day, right? And you remember, they're pouring out water, and they're thanking God for his provision of water in the wilderness, his provision of water for the crops. And that's what's going on when Jesus gets up. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now you can imagine that this caused a bit of a stir. Because who provides the water? Well, God provides the water. And now some kid from backwater Galilee, right, is saying, if you're really thirsty, come to me. And he's claiming in some real way to be God himself. And that's why in the following verses, if you look at verse 40 and verse 41 and verse 42 and verse 43, 44, that whole section, you get a range of responses to what Jesus has said. They, they know how significant it is that he would get up and yell that to everyone, right? Some say this really is the prophet. This is the one that we expected to come, a new prophet like Moses. Some say this is the Christ. That means the anointed one. Some say, yeah, but is the Christ supposed to come from Galilee, right? So they're, they're wondering about it. They're wondering about the David fulfillment. Verse 43 says there's division among the people over him, and some wanted to arrest him. So some are for it, and some think this is blasphemy. But whatever it is, it's incited a response. Now, John tells us back in verse 39 what we're to make of Jesus' words. Everyone else has their own thoughts about what that means. But John stops the narrative and kind of inserts as, as an author, jumps in and goes, actually, this is, what, this is what Jesus meant, right? And what does he say? He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So there's this anticipation of the Spirit coming, right? For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And in John's Gospel, the glorification of Jesus is always linked to Jesus' death on the cross. For John, the crucial high point of Jesus' ministry, the moment where he's glorified as king, is when he lays down his life and ascends to the throne by hanging on the tree. And so when John says he hasn't yet been glorified, he means he hasn't yet died and come back yet. That's yet to come. You'll only receive the Spirit, so to speak, when you realize just what kind of God this is. This is the God who will lay down his life for you. This is the God who will shed his blood for you. Once you realize that, then the Spirit will come. This is the God who lays down his life for his creation. And so John records this moment with Jesus. Again, think of the water-pouring ceremony thinking about Moses, and then Jesus says, but if you're thirsty, if anyone's thirsty here right now, come to me, and I can provide true and living water. That's a different sort of invitation, right? Now remember, everyone's supposed to bring something to the feast, right? Especially the firstborn men. But everyone brings a gift to share. It's kind of like the big, the big potluck, the big annual barbecue. And yet now here comes not just Jesus, 
But this is Jesus, fully God, fully man. This is Yahweh himself come back to his people at long last. And now what gift does he bring? He brings the very gift of his life-giving spirit for his people. And so Jesus fulfills that call to bring something, and yet as God, he brings the very best gift he can, which is the water of true life. Now this is the same feast, too, uh, that, that was happening when Solomon dedicated the first temple. And if you think about that passage, when, when Solomon dedicates the temple as a worship space, God's spirit comes and fills the temple in such a dramatic way that the priests can't minister. They just kind of flop over, right? Because God's spirit is so, so powerful. And in that same way, Jesus uh, has called the people to a sort of hope. There's a hope again in the people that God's spirit will come and refill their second temple, which they built, which had never been filled with the spirit of God. And so they're hoping someday for that spirit of Yahweh to come. And now here's Jesus, again, the very presence of God, Yahweh among them, which means he's the true temple. And here he is showing up. And what does he promise? Not just that now the spirit will fill them, but that the spirit will also flow out of them. So not only is God going to not fill a temple of stone, he's going to fill a temple of living people, of you and me. That's what the gift of the Spirit is all about. And Jesus says, I'm here. I'm the source of living water. And that promise of anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water. That promise was for the listeners that day. And it was for the apostles and the disciples in the upper room. And it's for the church through the centuries and for us this morning here in Dryden. Whoever believes, whoever's thirsty, let them come and drink and find life. And for all who come to Jesus and drink, there's this promise that out of our bellies come rivers of living water. There's this sense that not only do we come to Jesus sort of individualistically to get our own kind of needs met, as though it's just sort of this exchange, but that we come so that we can also participate in God's mission to extend his life to others. So it's not just me getting filled because I'm empty. It's me getting filled so that the Spirit can also flow out of me to reach other people with the healing and the grace and the love of God. Out of your bellies flow rivers of living water. Not just from Jesus' belly, so to speak. And as we do that, we then become like the temple. In Ezekiel, there's this vision of the temple and rivers flowing out of it. And as the rivers flow, it sort of heals the land and brings things back to life. But now if the temple's not a geographical stone building in a place, and the temple's now people, that means that the rivers flow out wherever we go and interact in God's world. That wherever we go, we bring God's life-giving, transforming presence with us as we come to bear in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our caregiving, in school. We come bringing the life-giving presence of God. That's Jesus' heart for his people. And that's the work of the Spirit in us. We continue to believe in the life-giving and dynamic work of God the Holy Spirit. 
in our lives and in our church, both individually but also corporately, that the Spirit comforts us and he encourages us and he guides us uh, and that he grows his fruit in us, which is a, a call to character transformation, right? Love and joy and peace, that's working on our, our, our very selves, so to speak. He also imparts his gifts, which is about, again, participating in the ministry of God in the world. And I want this morning, as we think about Jesus' invitation, that whoever is thirsty to come and to drink, it's an invitation that anyone who, who wants to follow Jesus, that we be open to the work and presence of the Spirit in our lives. And so very quickly, I want to touch on three ways in which the Spirit works in our lives. And perhaps one of these today is something that kind of stands out to you as an area in your life where you go, yeah, that's where I need God to be at work in my life. That's where I need to be open to what God would say to me today. So I'm going I'm to trace these three themes, and I want you to be thinking and praying, Lord, which of these do I need to be open to? Which of these do I need to respond to? So we've talked about the Spirit, in a sense, as water, living water, but the Bible also uses three other metaphors to describe the work of the Spirit. Wind, fire, and oil. And I've put, there's a graphic on the front of your bulletin that has those three. I want very quickly to think about each of those in turn. In many ways, the Spirit of God is described as wind. In fact, the Greek word pneuma uh, is, has the root of air in it. That's why, right, when, when you have pneumonia, it's a pneuma it's a disease in your breathing, right? That's why that works. It's still there in our language. But pneuma is about breath. And often in Hebrew, it goes back to God's ruach, his Hebrew word, for God's breath, his life-giving breath. You may think of Adam and Eve, right, in Genesis 1, where God breathes into them the breath of life. Or you may think of John, I think it's 21, 22, when after his resurrection, Jesus meets with the disciples and breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which God, by his Spirit, breathes new life into us. The second way in which the, the, the wind of God, we could say, or the Holy Spirit in the wind metaphor works, is also in directing and in leading. You may think of, of God, the Holy Spirit, hovering over the chaotic waters uh, in Genesis 1, right? sort of brooding over it, about to bring order out of the chaos. Or you may think of a similar passage of the Israelites at the Red Sea, where they're confronted again by the waters of chaos in front of them, and danger behind, and God's wind, it says an east wind blew, right? And God opens the Red Sea and parts the waters of chaos and death in order to lead them through into new life. In both of those ways, both as breath and as wind we may think of the spirit's work as a as a way of god bringing life and order and comfort in the middle of chaos or danger in our lives any of you facing any thing that feels like chaos in your life anything that feels destructive in your life do you feel kind of dead you feel like there's parts of you that have gone weak over time? Perhaps the Lord needs to breathe new life into those areas. Or perhaps you're facing something that's very difficult 
and you need God to open a way in the middle of that. That's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, what we may say is the wind of God. Maybe we need God to breathe over our lives today. The second image is fire, and often the Spirit is, is considered as a fire in terms of bringing the presence of God, providing light or guidance or conviction. In Acts, of course, the presence of the Spirit comes and there's tongues of fire or flames over the disciples. And what does that do? It emboldens the disciples to preach the gospel. It emboldens them to live for Jesus. You could say it, it impassions them or fans a flame for them to live for God. We also read throughout the Bible of the Spirit refining us like a fire, right? Or sanctifying us with his fire. Listen to uh, the Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. The Spirit does a sanctifying work in our lives. That means we're slowly growing in righteousness before God. We're slowly being changed. And so perhaps today you need to know the fire of the Holy Spirit, that God is stirring a fire perhaps of convicting you of sin, calling you into sanctification or perhaps he needs to embolden you to live for him in a, in a situation in your life that's difficult or where you've you've gotten used to not living for Jesus and the spirit wants to come and fan that back into flame maybe he wants to do that work in you today and the third metaphor is the metaphor of oil and oil of course was used well, again in two ways I think primarily of anointing oil but also for healing. Often you would anoint the person who needed, uh, when you were praying for them for healing, you would anoint them. But you also anoint prophets and priests and kings, and it's, a, it's an act of setting them apart for service or for a particular task. We may think of David being anointed by Samuel to be the new king of Israel. And it says that with the anointing of oil, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. We also may think of Jesus as the anointed one. That's what Christos means. That's what Christ, it's not Jesus' last name, right? It's not, it's not Christ, comma, Jesus, right? Jesus, W, Christ. It's not, it's not his last name. It means anointed one. And so in Jesus, you have the anointedness of prophets and priests and kings come together in his threefold office. We talked about that uh, a few months ago. Jesus applies that idea of anointing by the Spirit to himself. Think of a of how he reads Isaiah 61.1, right? It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has, what? Anointed me. To bring good news to the afflicted, that's the prophetic role. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, that's the priestly role, and to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, that's his kingly role. So Jesus is the anointed one. And not every reference to oil in the Bible is always about the Holy Spirit. But when we do have an anointing with oil, it is a call upon the Spirit to consecrate that person or to heal that person. And then we read in a passage like 1 John 2 that we have an anointing from the Holy One, meaning Jesus. The anointing which you've received from him abides in you. His anointing teaches you about all things. And so perhaps today you need to know the anointing oil 
of the Holy Spirit in your life, the healing power of God. Perhaps there's needs in your body or needs in your mind or you need God to come and bring healing. Or perhaps you need to know the consecrating power of God, the Holy Spirit, where he anoints us for the task at hand, sets you apart, calls you and equips you to live for him. Wind and fire and oil. Jesus says, anyone who's thirsty, come. And this is Pentecost Sunday. Anyone who's thirsty, come and receive the Spirit. So I want to ask again these, these three questions, each for these three metaphors. Again, do you feel perhaps that there's an area in your life that feels dead or chaotic? And if so, then we pray for the Spirit of God to come like wind and blow afresh on you? Is there an area where you feel distant from God or dirty with sin? Then we pray for the Spirit to come with fire to cleanse and to sanctify you. Do you feel perhaps unqualified or weary or weak? Then may you know the healing and anointing power of the Holy Spirit like oil today. I was thinking about how to respond to Jesus' words and how to respond to that threefold kind of metaphor idea of the work of the Spirit today. And I was thinking what I'd like to do is invite us as a whole congregation to respond together. I think we can do that. And just to ask that we would receive the Holy Spirit afresh in our lives. Think we can do that? that sound okay? What I'd like to do is I've invited uh, seven others to kind of join me in, in teams for praying up at the front. And what I'd like to do is sort of treat it like communion. On a communion Sunday where we ask anyone who knows Jesus and loves him to come forward, and instead of receiving a little cup and a little piece of bread, what we'd like to do is for you to come forward, and there'll be, like I said, four teams up here of our pastoral team, and I've asked Jordan and Rob and Donna to help me as well. And we'd like to just anoint you and just quickly pray over you that you would receive the Holy Spirit in a fresh way. Nothing major, nothing, nothing we're not going to take a super long time. But I'd like to invite us all to come and as an active response as a congregation together to, to pray that we would receive the Holy Spirit in a fresh way. Um, and, and we'll get the worship team to play as we do that. And we're just going to take a few minutes to, to ask God to come and to do that work in us. And, and if you're married, come as a couple. If you've got a family, you've got kids, come as a whole family. And we just want to anoint you and pray over you. And uh, once we've, most of us have kind of walked through, we'll, we'll finish the service and I'll pray and send us out. But let's respond to Jesus' invitation to come and, uh, and again, be asking, where do I need him in my, in my life? Do I need him like a wind to breathe new life? Do I need him like a fire to sanctify me? Or do I need him like oil to heal and to anoint you? And so as we, together as a church, say yes to Jesus and we are anointed afresh, let's ask him to come and do that work in us. So why don't we stand, and, and those that are part of the prayer teams, why don't we, um, we'll put a, a couple over there and a couple here and a couple here and a couple here. And what I'll, what I'll ask you to do is just come up and, and come to the nearest couple and we'll anoint you and pray over you quickly and then you can go back to your seats. 
uh, kind of like we do for communion. And once everyone has come through, who, who uh, um, yeah, once we've come through and it sort of slows down at the end, I'll pray for us and, uh, and we'll go from there. Well, thank you for being willing to come and to join together in prayer. If you'd like to stick around and pray more or if you need uh, someone to come and cover you, we'd love to do that. But otherwise, I know many of us have to go, so why don't we stand together and we'll, we will, uh, I'll say the benediction over you. And if you need to head out, we will bless you as you go. So children of God who are loved and forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ, may you know the wind of the Spirit who brings new life and guidance and may you know the fire of the Spirit that brings presence and sanctification. And may you know the oil of the Spirit who brings his healing and his anointing to bear in your life. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace. We love you. Have a great week. And uh, for those that are able, we'd love to see you tonight for Sanctuary at 5. Bless you. Have a great day. As